right. Well, just a reminder, a few things. I've got a few pastoral things to say before we talk about tribulation. Pastoral thing I'm going to say the first is this. Next week is our last week of theological equipping for this semester, okay? So we're going to do a full class Q&A. Jeff Ashley and I are going to be up here like, uh, like Dr. Phil or something, and we're both going to sit on some stools and ask each other some astute questions. And so uh, that's going to be our last class for this semester. And then again, we don't break for services, but we will break from theological equipping in the month of December. When we come back in the new year, what will we be studying? We're going to be doing apologetics. That's defending the faith and world religions. How do you best minister to your Muslim neighbor, your Hindu neighbor? How do we know that God exists? How do we know that the Bible's true? Why does God allow things like the Canaanite genocide in the Old Testament where they are to kill everything that breathes, including the animals, including the kids? What do we do with those kind of things? We're going to be talking about that stuff next semester. Should be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, But we need you to send in some questions. If you have a burning question that has to do with eschatology, sure, you can send in whatever question you want, but if you want us to address it, uh, it has a higher chance of being addressed if it's about what we've talked about this semester, which is the doctrine of the last things, uh, eschatology, the end times. So please send us some uh, emails this week uh, or else we'll have nothing to talk about. And uh, Jeff and I will literally just have to do like a talk show. We'll have Tim as like our musical guest. Carl will do stand-up comedy. It will be a lot of fun. So uh, that will be next week and then we will break for December. Next. We have, throughout this little series, especially as we've been talking about the millennium and uh, the rapture and things like this, we have been making fun of certain positions, and so I just want to reiterate something that Jeff said last week, which is, just because we make fun of something, it doesn't mean we're making fun of you, okay? Uh, we love you, we, uh, we care for you, we poke jokes at everything. We make fun of ourselves, we make fun of other people. Why do we mock at Parkway? Well, for two reasons. Number one, mocking is biblical, Okay? God mocks Job, Isaiah mocks idolaters, Jesus mocks the Pharisees, Paul mocks the Judaizers. Mocking is biblical. Yes, you can do it in a bad, mean-spirited way, but in and of itself, it's morally neutral and it can be used in a good or bad way. But the second reason that we do this is because we want you to take theology seriously, but we don't want you to take yourself seriously, okay? We want to take God seriously, but we don't want to take humanity too seriously because we're the ones who are always messing everything up. So there's something about, have you ever heard the phrase, pain is weakness leaving the body? You'll see that on the back of like a Marine Corps t-shirt or in the gym or something. Well, laughter in church is the sound of self-righteousness leaving the body. And so that's why we tell these little jokes and that's why we pick fun at each other and these kind of things. Now, additionally, you need to know this. Some of you in here have not earned the right to make fun of dispensationalists. You have to earn that right. Okay? So do not mock thinkers who are greater than you. Some of you have earned that right, but some of you haven't studied it enough. Some of you haven't had some dispensational person just own you in a conversation where you have to go back and study. And until you've gone through that experience, you've not truly experienced it yet. So remember, when we do theology, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Have you ever heard that phrase? Okay? We are not great thinkers today. We're only great thinkers because we're standing on the shoulders of the giants that go before us. If we see anything further, okay, so so let's imagine that you have a big giant, and let's imagine you have a little dwarf that's sitting on his shoulders, okay? Who can see further? The dwarf. But the only reason the dwarf can see farther, farther, farther relates to distance, further relates to degree. The only reason he can see farther is because he's sitting on the giant's shoulders, okay? So you need to remember, if I have a better view of baptism than Martin Luther, okay? The only reason, though, that I see it farther than he does is because I'm sitting on his shoulders, and then like everyone's sitting on Augustine's shoulders and these kind of things. So remember, 
uh, that there are people that have gone before us that are great thinkers. And so if we see things more clearly than them, it's only because they've done the work first. So let that produce an amount of uh, uh, humility for you. Okay, pastoral stuff over. Now just plain sterile theology with no pastoral care implications. Let's talk about the tribulation. In Greek, it's called the thalipsis. And sometimes that word tribulation is linked to another word, which is megale, the great tribulation. So we're going to talk about uh, those things today. Let me give you some definitions. First of all, definition of tribulation, simply this, a time of intense suffering and persecution, a time of intense suffering and persecution, a very basic, simple definition. You'll see why we use this definition as we go through this lesson. Uh, Let me give you a note, okay? Though those who are amillennial and postmillennial can believe in some type of tribulation, the timing, notice that that word is in italics, the timing of the tribulation in regards to the second coming of Christ is more of a discussion in premillennial camps, both historic and dispensational. So here's what we're talking about today, just if I can make it as, as clear as possible. The Bible talks about a time of intense suffering for God's people. The question is, what does that mean? When is it? When is it in relation to the second coming? Does it happen before Christ comes back? Does it happen after Christ comes back? Does he rapture up Christians or something like that and then this thing happens and then Jesus has to come back a second time as in a dispensational view? What are we to think about this idea of tribulation? So before we get into that, I want to mention, oh, Jared, you clipped this cord on my collar, but it came off. That's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll dock it from your pay. Okay. What you have, let me give you some background to this idea of tribulation, and uh, we'll start with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have this teaching that one day there'll be some sort of cataclysmic event, some sort of terrible thing happening to God's people. You also see this specifically in Jewish literature outside of the Bible. That's what we mean by non-canonical, that it's not part of Scripture. You see this idea in there as well. Daniel 12, 1 says this, at that time shall arise Michael. Who's Michael? This archangel or archangel, depending on how you want to say it. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written, found written in the book. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15 says this. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, okay? So there's some impending thing, and there's a lot of clouds and darkness, which doesn't sound pleasant. Whatever that means, it seems to mean something bad. Now let's look outside of the Old Testament just so we see what Jews thought about this idea uh, as we move closer to the time of the New Testament. In the Testament of Moses, 8.1. Anybody do your devotional this morning out of the Testament of Moses? I didn't think so because it's not scripture, but it's helpful for understanding what Jews believe. It says this, And there will come upon them punishment and wrath, such as has never happened to them from the creation till that time when he stirs up against them a king of the kings of the earth. Second Baruch 27, 1 and then 15. In the first part, there shall be the beginning of commotions. That's a good word. For some shall leave out some of their own and receive in its stead from others, and some complete their own and that of others, so that those may not understand who are upon the earth in those days, that this is the consummation of the times. In the Didache, okay, this is a very early Christian document, okay, the Didache 16.5 says, then shall the creation of men come into the fire of trial, and many shall be made to stumble and shall perish. 
but they that endure in their faith shall be saved from under the curse itself. So notice, both in the Old Testament and even in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's called the intertestamental period, and even in writings outside of the Bible, there's already this idea in Jewish theology that bad things are coming, okay? That there's going to be a time where everything is the worst, God's people are going to be persecuted and they're going to be killed and there's going to be a lot of scary words like commotion and wrath. I don't even know what commotion is, but it sounds really scary. And then you get into the New Testament and the New Testament does the same thing. It's going to talk about this great tribulation, this specific time of persecution, but it's also going to talk about general times of persecution. So let's look at a few passages. By the way, there's a lot more than this, but for time's sake, I'm just giving you an example of a few. Let's look in the New Testament. So the New Testament, at some places, seems to teach a specific cataclysmic tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That sounds pretty bad. How bad is it? Worse than anything that's happened so far. Worse than the Holocaust, worse than Pol Pot, worse than, uh, you know, the the tens of millions of people killed under Stalin. It's going to be the worst. Okay, for Christians, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, notice how cataclysmic it is. It's using big, scary space words like stars. Okay, that's how you always know. That's how you know it's good. Revelation 7, 14, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, this is John talking when he says, sir, you know. These are the ones coming out of the what? The great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So there's this great scene in Revelation where John's like, who are these people? And he's told these are people who have died as martyrs during the great tribulation. Okay. Notice that Christians are going through it in that passage. But you also have in the New Testament, this idea of tribulation being used just for general times, not this one specific, you know, like Super Bowl of Christianity time, but it's used throughout Christian history. It's kind of something we're always going through if you look here. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Notice, by the way, that you find peace is by resting in Christ, not by changing your circumstances, not by changing what you're going through, even when you're being persecuted. Peace is found not in the absence of suffering, but in the presence of Christ. I have said these things to you. Take heart in me that uh, uh, you may have peace. In the world, you will have what? Tribulation. Notice it's kind of used in a general sense here. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Acts 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, wait a second. That's not what they said on TBN. On TBN, they said, the way you enter the kingdom of God is by conjuring up enough faith and naming it and claiming it and having wealth and happiness and health now. That's not what this text says. This text says that you don't enter the kingdom except through tribulations. If you're struggling, if something's going bad in your life, if you're being persecuted, if things are hard, that is tremendously good evidence that you're a Christian, okay? That is tremendously good evidence that you are a Christian. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in what? Tribulation tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Revelation 1, 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Now, wait a second. Oh, this gets a little bit tricky. So now you have John 2,000 years ago writing to Christians, and he says, I'm in the tribulation now. Notice it's the tribulation, okay? 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Well, the kingdom's already come to some extent and the tribulation's already come to some extent. And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here's where it gets tricky. The Bible talks about tribulation in two different ways. Sometimes it's used for just general sufferings that Christians go through. Other times it seems to be used for one specific worst of the worst event, okay? And sometimes, and this is the worst time, the terms are used interchangeably. The tribulation in some sense has already started, but it's not complete. So then is it general again, or is it that one big Super Bowl tribulation? I don't know, okay? That's where it gets really tricky when it comes to the tribulation. Now, on top of all of that, you've got that Old Testament background, intertestamental background, New Testament background. On top of all of that, you have certain events that have happened throughout world history that have influenced the way that we think about tribulation, okay? So, for example, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were exiled, as, were, uh, as was Judah. So the exile of Israel to Assyria happened in 722 B.C. and the exile of Judah to Babylon in 586, 587-ish B.C. So when you start thinking tribulation to a Jew, they're already going to take this time where God has judged them and they've had to go into a foreign land and you're going to read that onto the circumstance. So what God does is God says, okay, Israel, you like idols? I'm going to give you all the idols you can handle. That's God's wrath, by the way, is to turn you over to sin. It's not to lovingly rebuke you and discipline you. God's wrath is to turn people over to sin. And so the uh, Israelites are committing idolatry, and God says, okay, you want idols? I'll give you idols. And so they get to go into exile and see all the idols their hearts can handle. And to them, there's this idea of wrath. There's this idea of justice. A lot of their people get killed in fighting against these pagan nations. And so that idea plays into their concept of uh, tribulation. Then in the intertestamental period, by the way, pop quiz, what is the intertestamental period? I keep saying that term. Who can tell me what that is? Between the Old and the New Testament. You got it. Absolutely right. We call that the intertestamental period because wait for it, it is inter the testaments. Okay? That's how you remember. It's in the name. And, uh, and so there was a big event that happened in the intertestamental period where you had a uh, pagan ruler. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay, which means God manifest. You can tell he's very, he's very humble, you see. Uh, that's the problem. We were joking about this before. The problem with humility is it's hard to let people know how humble you are. That's, the pro- that's why I don't like humility because nobody knows. Nobody knows when I'm doing it. And so, uh, and so anyway, so you have Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he comes and he persecutes the Jews, okay? He sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. He slaughters a pig, which is an unclean animal, to Jews on the altar in Jerusalem. He brings in pagan standards. He forces Jews to break the Mosaic law. So, for example, he, uh, he actually will kill Jewish babies and hang them around their mother's neck. It's because their mothers are not to circumcise them. Uh, in uh, in uh, the Maccabean books, if you've ever read First and Second Maccabees, again, not in the Bible, but helpful for Jewish literature, uh, there's this great scene where Antiochus is killing these Jewish people because they won't eat pork. He's forcing them to eat pork, and he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to torture you. And they say, that's fine. I'll be resurrected, which is awesome. You have a reference to resurrection uh, in Jewish thinking even before the time of the New Testament. And then he sears one in a cauldron. He cuts off the other one's hands and feet and gouges out his tongue. I mean, he scalps them alive. He kills them in all these terrible ways. And uh, his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, the Jews to mock him would call him Antiochus IV Epimenes, which means madman. 
Okay, so they did a little play on word there to make fun of uh, this guy because they hated him. But that is seen in Jewish thinking as a serious time of tribulation. You have a pagan king in Jerusalem desecrating the temple, killing Jews, forcing us to disobey God's law. It is a terrible thing. It is what the Bible is referring to with an abomination of desolation. If you've heard that phrase, the immediate reference is to uh, what happened under Antiochus, uh, though there might be a future understanding of that phrase as well. In addition to that, from 66 to 70 AD, you had the Jewish war between Judea and Rome, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but that idea, especially for later Christian understanding and for Jewish understanding, will be read back onto the scriptures when they think of the idea of things like tribulation. You have this pagan worldly power, Rome, who is killing and destroying the temple and doing the same kind of stuff pagan Antiochus IV did. And then on top of all of that, so you've got Old Testament background, intertestamental history, New Testament background, Jewish background, Old Testament exile background. On top of all of that, you have the persecution of Christianity under Nero, Decius, Diocletian, and other Roman emperors that will be read back onto the text. So when it comes to our thinking about the tribulation, I say all of that to say this, we have a lot of pre-assumptions. We have a lot of presuppositions. What is a presupposition? To quote Karl Brower, it's what you think before you think right? It's these things you assume pre. Uh, You go into it. So everyone in here already came in today with an idea of what tribulation means. You might have thought of like tribulation force, like left behind, or you might have thought about some future time where some leader from Romania is going to team up with 10 countries in Europe and kill all these Christians and all this kind of stuff. You come in with your preset assumptions. We all do that. We just want to have better presuppositions. We want to have biblical presuppositions, not 21st century American presuppositions. So, How should we understand this tribulation? I'm going to give you five different ways to help understand this tribulation. Number one, it is something that is always going on as God's saints are persecuted in the church age, okay? Augustine holds this view. Uh, This is the idea that when the Bible talks about a great tribulation, it's not necessarily one specific time at the end where things are super bad. Rather, it's what we're always experiencing, okay? Think about how much the Bible talks about these big events as already happening. In a sense, the kingdom has already come. In a sense, the resurrection, not in a sense, the resurrection has already started because of Christ and one day we will be raised. There's just a big gap between his and ours. Uh, We're already saved, but we're also being saved, okay? We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, but we're waiting to actually be seated with Christ in heavenly places. So there's all these things that have begun. What Augustine would say is, well, it's the same thing is true of the tribulation. Yeah, Augustine, but what about all this big flowery language? What do you mean? That, the Bible uses that kind of language with all kinds of stuff. It says you're seated with Christ in heavenly places and look around. I'm here in McKinney. Now, don't get me wrong. McKinney's beautiful, but it's not heaven, right? And so uh, in the same way, there's this cataclysmic language used with the tribulation, stars falling from the sky and clouds turning dark and all these kind of things. And yet God's people are, in a sense, always going through tribulation, okay? What do you think it's like today to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia? You think they're sitting here talking like this and, you know, talking about theology, saying whatever they want with freedom? No. And so uh, the first way to understand tribulation is to simply say it's what's always happening with God's people while we're waiting for the end to come, okay? The second way to understand the tribulation is it is the period of time around 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and massacred the Jewish people. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is something you have to know to understand a lot of the New Testament. In 70 AD, 
the Romans absolutely slaughter the Jews, and this would be a turning point in Judaism. Judaism was centered around two twin pillars, the law, the Torah, and the temple. The Torah was primarily preceded over by the Pharisees, and then the temple was uh, preceded over by the uh, Sadducees. When the temple goes away, Judaism as a whole shifts, and you get what is called rabbinic Judaism. What is rabbinic Judaism? It is a bunch of commentary on Torah, and it is a way of trying to figure out how to do Judaism when one of the central pillars of Judaism, the temple, is no longer there. It's the kind of Judaism we have today. Judaism today, Judaism throughout the Middle Ages are the, uh, the inheritors of Pharisaical Judaism. I don't mean that in the negative legalistic way, but the Pharisaical side of Judaism, not the, uh, not the, the Judaism of the, uh, the Sadducees. So this will be a really important thing. Now, let me tell you how bad this was, okay? During the Jewish war, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it was pretty bad. How bad was it? Thank you for asking. Let me show you a few ways how bad it was. Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews were killed during the siege of Jerusalem, okay? That number might be inflated a bit, but of our, uh, of our records, we do know that a ton of Jews were killed during this siege. The temple was destroyed, okay? That's huge. If you're a Jew, this is where God resides. So if the temple's been destroyed, it means God's already left. He's not there anymore. And they completely destroy it. They don't just like, it's not just like a little F1 tornado that blows the fence down. It is, they literally take bars and pry apart the bricks to tear it apart. They light it on fire as well. They do all these kind of things to destroy the temple. They crucified 500 Jews per day and they stopped doing it, not because they're merciful, but because they ran out of wood. They were crucifying 500 Jews a day. That's a lot of soldiers using crucifying Jews. They would just line them up as punishment for the rebellion against Rome. By the way, what is the punishment for rebellion against Rome? Crucifixion. What does Pilate try Jesus as? One who is, says he's a king, right? He's causing all this disruption. He's an enemy of Rome. If you don't crucify him, Pilate, you're no friend of the emperor. That's what they say. And so anyway, they crucify 500 Jews, and then they stop only because they run out of wood, which is funny to me. They're like, we want to keep doing this? No, we'll have to go cut down some more wood. We're out. We're done. We're done. We're done with the crucifixions. That's what's happening. There is a holdout by the Jews at a place called Masada. So if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you have to go to Masada. Masada is this famous fortress, and it's up on a plateau. I'm going to draw a picture. I wasn't planning on doing this, but as I think how hilarious this picture will be, here we go. This is a plateau. The squeak made it even better. That's a plateau. That's a plateau. What is a plateau? It's kind of uh, what eventually happens to your high school football career, okay? Uh, this is a castle. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's, oh, man. They didn't have the same tools we have today. There's a castle on the plateau. This is the Dead Sea. Let's put it over here. Okay. I'm changing the angles of this a little bit just for this drawing. (laughs) Look at that. Leave that up here. Have a visitor walk in right now. They're like, I'm not going to this church. That looks weird. Okay. So this is a castle up on, it's a fortress up on this plateau. It's out in the middle of the desert. And the only water around is the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth and a sea that is so salty, nothing can live there. If you think of the Dead Sea as being gross with moss, there's no moss. There's no seaweed. There's no animals. It is beautiful, crystal clear blue water with a white salt coastline. It's beautiful. You can't drown, supposedly, in the Dead Sea because you're so buoyant. 
There's actually a, a case of a Roman emperor who was told when they went through Israel that you couldn't drown in the Dead Sea, and so he tied up a slave and threw him in the water, and he didn't drown. But then he died from all the salt exposure. So it's very salty. You can't drink it or something. It, it could kill you if you drink too much. It's that salty. So you're out in the middle of the wilderness. So if somebody wants to attack you, think of all the things that are against them. It's hot. There's no food around. There's no water around. The only water that's teasing you is the Dead Sea where you can't fish. And you have to somehow storm a plateau with a fortress on top. So you can't bring a siege ramp up to it because you'll just be down here. So the Romans, over a period of a long time, have to take dirt and build a ramp up. You can go see it today. And it is just literally people with manpower all day moving dirt for months and months and months and months and months until they create this ramp to where they can finally get up to Masada where the Jews are. And when they get there, they're like, after they've put us through all this work out here in the heat, we're going to massacre all of them. When they get to Masada, all the Jews had already committed mass suicide. Some people think this is a very good description of what the tribulation is because it's when God's people run to the mountains to, be, to flee this foreign oppressor, these pagans, and yet they still get destroyed. They still get conquered to an extent. Number three, it is an undefined period of suffering in the future that God's people will have to endure. Let me read that again. This is a very popular view. It is an undefined period of suffering in the future that God's people will have to endure. This is called post-tribulation or post-trib because Christ comes back after the tribulation, okay? This is the standard understanding throughout most of church history. When we talked about the millennium, we gave you several terms. What were those different views of the millennium? Who remembers? Say it proudly. Pre-mill? What does that mean? Christ comes back when in relation to the millennium? Pre, before. What's the other one? Amil. What does that mean? Yeah, there is no literal millennium. That's just a synonym for the church age, okay? What's the other view? Post-mill. Christ comes back when in relation to the millennium? Yes, post. Correct. After. So, in theology, we also say pre-trib and post-trib, and that is the question of when will Christ return in relation to this tribulation, if he comes after the tribulation, it is called post-trib, post-tribulational. If he comes back before the tribulation, it's called pre-tribulational, okay? So if you say that you are premillennial, people will typically ask, okay, are you post-trib or pre-trib premillennial? Do you think Christ comes back after or before this great tribulation? Number four is the corollary. So we just saw what post-tribulation is. Christ comes back after Christians go through this tribulation. Number four, here's another view of the tribulation. It is a seven-year period of suffering in the future that God's people will not have to endure at all. This is called pre-tribulation or pre-trib because Christ comes back before the tribulation. This is the left-behind, dispensational, late great planet Earth, TBN kind of view, okay? It's that Christ comes and sucks up all the Christians into heaven, and then everything gets really bad. The Christians don't have to go through it. Notice Christ has come back before the tribulation, and then Christ comes back with his saints again at the end, and then there's the whole millennium thing. There's just a lot of steps, okay? There's just a lot of steps. It is the, uh, the stair-stepper of theology positions because there's just, the steps just are endless, it feels like. They just keep coming. Number five, if that wasn't complicated enough, there's another view that it is a seven-year period of suffering in the future that God's people will have to endure for three and a half years but don't have to endure for the second, worse, three and a half years. This is called mid-tribulation or mid-trib because Christ comes back in the middle of the tribulation. 
This is a very rare view held by theologians such as Gleason Gleason Archer that believe that the seven-year tribulation is broken up into three and a half years of the wrath of man and three and a half years of the wrath of God. This view is based on the fact that in Daniel and Revelation, the time periods that describe the end are cut in half, right? Time, times, and half a time. You'll have that kind of language that is used. However many weeks have gone by, whatever. So, so here are kind of the big views. We go through the tribulation, then Christ comes, post-trib. Yay. The other view is Christ comes, sucks everybody out of here that are Christians. We don't go through the tribulation, pre-trib, Okay. There's another view, this mid-trib view, that tries to split the middle, pun intended. And they say, well, we'll go through some of the tribulation, the part that deals with the wrath of man. But when God starts really pouring out his wrath, halfway through that process, then we don't have to go through that. And if that wasn't even more complicated, there is another weird variation of this. Note, look at note one there in your notes. If that isn't confusing enough, there's a small minority view called pre-wrath. Now listen to this view. It states that Christians will still be raptured but that the rapture will come after the seven years of man tribulation. So that seems to be the worst of both views. They still hold this weird rapture thing, but they think you still have to go through the tribulation. That seems to be like a lose-lose to me. Uh, But that is kind of a weird minority view, okay? Now, notice that I've given you five different kind of views here. Look at note two. I think this is important. In the first three views, you have those in the amillennial, postmillennial, and historic premillennial camps. So defining the tribulation as general persecution, that what happened in 70 AD, or this, this persecution Christians go through in the future before Christ returns, those three views are held by the other, most of the positions, amill, post-mill, and historic pre-mill. The fourth and fifth views, you only have those that are in the dispensational premillennial camp. Okay, you only have the, uh, those who are dispensational, uh, the dispensationalists. So uh, keep that in mind for those things. Now, Uh, Let's look to the next subheading here. Why dispensationalists say Christians will not go through the tribulation? So if you're somebody who grew up dispensational and uh, you're wanting to know why they say Christians won't go through the tribulation, I will give you a few reasons on that. Now, before I do, I want to say this. In a lot of our lessons in theological equipping, we will repeat some material for your benefit because you have to. So last week when Jeff talked about the rapture, he also had to talk a little about the tribulation and he had to talk some about dispensationalism. Today, going over the tribulation, I need to talk a little bit about dispensationalism and some about the rapture. So if you think, wait a second, I've heard this. Yes, that's for your benefit. It's not like because we've told you that Jesus died for your sins, we never say it again. We always need to hear these things more than one time, okay? So why dispensationalists say Christians will not go through the tribulation? Maybe that's your view. Maybe you came into this class and you thought, man, I can't wait for Christ to come back, so I'll be out of here when things get real crazy. Nope. But let's go over why you might think that, okay? First, they believe there has to be a time for all the promises in the Old Testament made to ethnic Israel to be fulfilled in ethnic Israel. The tribulation is when they believe this will happen. How will the Jews see they are wrong, question mark? Because all the Christians will be sucked up into heaven, okay? Let me explain what really drives dispensationalism. It's not end time stuff. What drives dispensationalism is a larger hermeneutic. What you have is this. In the Old Testament, you have all these promises made to Israel. Promises of land, promises of a temple, promises of a priesthood, promises of circumcision, all promises to have a king on the throne and inherit the earth. You have all these promises made to Israel. The question is, are those promises fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel? Or are those promises fulfilled in something else? That's really the question. Okay, that's really the question. The dispensationalist will say 
Those promises must be fulfilled to literal, physical, national Israel. If you then ask the question, when is that going to happen? Here's their catch-all answer during the tribulation. When will Israel really inherit the land? When will they rebuild the temple? When will all these kind of things happen? When they clearly have a chance to see that the Christians are gone. What's pretty good evidence for Christianity? It's not the Creation Science Museum. No, no. Rather, it's everybody being sucked up who's a Christian and there being no more Christians. That's pretty good evidence, okay, for the world to see. But what they think is that those promises will be fulfilled in those seven years. They don't think all the promises have to be fulfilled in those seven years, but it's a good uh, crassly, overly simplistic summary to understand what's going on. What's the response to that? My response is that Jesus is the true Israel, and those that are linked to him are truly Jews. Their system misunderstands the role of Israel and the church and bifurcates Israel and the church. So what they'll say is, Zach, if the promises were made to the Jews, they have to be fulfilled in Israel, to which the New Testament responds, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He is the true Israelite. He has 12 disciples because Israel had 12 tribes. He's 40 days in the wilderness because Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. They went across the sea. Jesus goes across the sea at his baptism. They have a temple. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Israel as a man. Not only that, he's ethnically Jewish. So if you even say, Zach, that doesn't sound literal enough. Why? God made a promise to Jews, to the seed of Abraham. That seed of Abraham is Jesus, who's actually Jewish. The end, okay? So what I would say is that the New Testament sees all the promises of God finding their yes in Christ, the true Israelite. And as Paul will say, a Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision a matter of the flesh. A Jew is one who's a Jew inwardly by a circumcision of the spirit. That's the idea. So are you saying, Zach, that the New Testament redefines what a Jew is? Yes, but not so much of a redefine, more of a fulfillment. It took someone who's actually Jewish, Jesus, the true Israel, and it grafts us into him. So it fulfills the literal promises of having to have an actual ethnic Jew, and it fulfills the promises that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to all nations, to the goyim, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Next, dispensationalists will say that Christians will not go through the tribulation because this would mean that God was pouring out his wrath on believers, I've heard a lot of people say that. I heard one guy that was dispensational one time say, I don't think we'll be in the tribulation because Jesus isn't a wife beater. He doesn't hit his church, right? He doesn't abuse his church. He doesn't pour out his wrath. Here's the response to that. God is not pouring out his wrath on believers. He's pouring out his wrath on non-believers. And because they're suffering, they're persecuting believers. Think back to the Israelites in Egypt. When the plagues come, God's not pouring out his wrath on the Israelites. He's pouring out his wrath on the Egyptians. But because their life is bad, hurt people hurt people. And so what they do is they make life worse for the Israelites. They make them make, you know, bricks without the straw. They have to go cut their own straw and their life gets worse. So we're not saying that God is pouring out his wrath on believers. God is pouring out his wrath on losties and they get mad and so they persecute Christians. Okay, that's the idea. Losties is not a Parkway approved term, by the way. That's just, there you go. Just trying to keep you awake as we talk about death and destruction. Some will point to Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. They'll say, see, this looks pretty clear. Christians don't have to go through the tribulation. Here's the response. This text says nothing about believers being taken out of the earth. It just promises God's protection of his people. 
Also, if it was talking about a rapture that was going to happen 2,000 years ago, how would that encourage the church at Philadelphia? By Philadelphia, I don't mean in uh, Pennsylvania. I mean in the, in the first century. One of the churches there is named Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Phileo uh, Adelphos. And so that's what he's saying. So I, if you're a dispensationalist and you say, this has to be about Christians getting out of tribulation, John's writing it to those going through tribulation in his day 2,000 years ago. So you've already missed the boat on that interpretation. And then the strongest argument, which I don't actually think is very strong, but it's the biggest argument used by dispensationalism of why we will not go through the tribulation, they will say is that the Bible teaches that Christians will be raptured away. The response to that is below. This is just a quick recap. I'm not going to spend much time here because Jeff already went over this. What's the deal with the rapture? The Greek word that we translate as rapture is harpazo. The Latin term is rapio, which means to seize or snatch. Technically, all Christians believe we will meet Christ in the air. The question is, are we meeting him in the air because we are escorting back down to earth, the traditional view, or are we meeting him there because we have been secretly taken away from the earth before the third coming of Christ, which is the dispensational view, okay? So technically, all Christians believe in a rapture, but when people say rapture today, they almost always mean pre-tribulational secret rapture. In that sense, we should not believe in a rapture. Zach, do you believe in a rapture? I do not. Let me clarify what I mean. Yes, the Bible says that we will meet Christ in the air. So I believe in that, a meeting Christ in the air. If you want to say that's a rapture, sure. That's not what the term typically means, though. The term has changed meaning. The term means, do you believe in a pre-tribulational left-behind series rapture? No, I do not. So let's look at some passages that don't actually teach a pre-tribulation rapture. Again, I'm going really quickly here because Jeff already covered this, but I think you have to do tribulation and rapture together because they go together. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. This is the proof text that people use for a rapture. Remember, the rapture is a secret, quiet second coming of Christ where believers just disappear. It's not obvious, okay, until after they're gone. Look at this text. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel or archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Notice this context of this passage is about the actual bodily second coming of Christ. It's not about a rapture. Notice how big and obvious it is, okay? It says that there is the voice of an archangel, a trumpet, and a shout, a cry of command. That looks like the opposite of a rapture. The idea of a rapture is you're just walking along and boom, you're a pile of clothes on the floor because you're gone. This is obvious. It's like, ah, I don't know what the sound is from the archangel. Ah, he's here now, a trumpet, and then a cry of command and these kind of things. It's very clear that it's the second coming. So the one passage that seems to clearly be used as a rapture for pre-tribulational rapture, has nothing to do with that. The only rapture, the only going up into heaven is to escort Christ because that's what you would do for a king in the ancient world. You don't just, if a king came to your door, you wouldn't just sit on the couch and be like, come in. You'd go out and you would escort him in. It's the same thing with Christ, okay? Matthew 24, 37 through 41. Jeff talked about this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Notice that phrase. Underline it. The flood takes people away, okay? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Notice in that context, you don't want to be taken. You want to stay. 
people make that passage mean the exact opposite of what it says. They say, see, this is the rapture. One person's taken and another one's left. The context makes it clear. Who are the ones taken in the days of Noah? Who are the ones washed away in the judgment floods of Noah? The bad guys. So you don't want to be taken. You want to hang on to that mill as your buddy gets washed away. You want to hang on to those stalks of grain in that field as your buddy gets washed away. You want to stay. You do not want to be taken, okay? You do not want to be taken. Now, Jeff talked more about that. Listen to his uh, lecture from last week. It was very good. Let me end by talking about uh, why Christians will go through the tribulation and then why does this matter, okay? Number one, here are several reasons why here's what I'm saying. I say this whole lesson to say this. If this is confusing and I used words like Masada and these kind of things, wash all that from your mind. Here's all I'm trying to say to you. Christians will go through intense suffering before Christ comes back. Okay. How do I take the term tribulation? I take it to be a combination of those first three views. In a sense, we are always going through tribulation because we are being persecuted. We live this side of eternity and things go bad. In another sense, the Bible is using what's happened in 70 AD as a picture for tribulation, and it does seem like, and this goes along with my uh, amillennial slash historic premillennial views, which is that I think things will get worse until there is a cataclysmic time where God's people just get absolutely slaughtered, okay? Let me tell you why I think those things are true. First of all, the Bible does not teach a pre-tribulational rapture, and the Bible says that Christ's final coming is after the tribulation, so quote erat demonstrandum, Christians will go through it, okay? So logically, we will go through it. Number two, the Bible and church history are very clear that part of the mark of true Christians is that they don't fall away when persecution becomes very intense. The Bible also seems to say that things get worse for Christians right before Christ returns. By the way, there are even some views of postmillennialism that think that things generally get better, but there's still one more last hurrah kind of by the devil before the, uh, the very end. So there is even some things here compatible with uh, postmillennialism. Number three, there are not two returns of Christ taught in Scripture, which is a necessity if you think Christians will not go through the tribulation. And now number four. Zach, that sounds like a lot of philosophy. That sounds like a bunch of thoughts. Are there anything, in the, is there anything in the Bible that points to Christians going through a lot of pain? Yeah, let me give you some. Mark 13, 20 through 21 says this. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Notice election is all over the Bible. You don't see it till you see it and then you can't not see it, okay? But for the sake of the elect, he has to cut the days short because the elect are going through it, whatever it is. Even if it's what's going on in 70 AD and then there's like a foreshadowing or whatever, shorten the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, Harold Camping, okay? Notice that this is directed to Christ's disciples and it's about believers, not just Jews who convert or something like that in the tribulation. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, written to the churches, says this. This one's very strong evidence for me. When he opened the fifth seal, it's talking about God's wrath being poured out on mankind and people getting mad and persecuting Christians. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Notice, you have Christians who've been martyred during this time. They cried out with a loud voice saying this, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God has already numbered and ordained the people that will be martyred. Hurry up, God. When will this be done? We got to wait till that number is complete. That's what this text is saying. Revelation 12, 11. 
and they have conquered him, talking about conquering the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Again, the context of Revelation is God pouring out his wrath on the world, not on Christians, but on lost people, and they get mad and kill Christians. And so all throughout the book of Revelation, there's this idea to endure suffering, to endure persecution, endure tribulation. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Christians that I'm writing to at these seven churches and by implication all churches, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So here's a passage at the beginning of Revelation written to churches saying, there's going to be tribulation for you that comes from the devil. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Matthew 24, seven through nine. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, this might not be a newsflash to most of you, but I'm not a lady. But here's what I know about birth pains. You're just sitting there eating nachos and all of a sudden you're like, the baby's coming and I hurt, okay? That's what it's gonna be like. You're just gonna be sitting there eating your nachos and boom, tribulation. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. I'm sorry, I can't even do it with a straight face. Trying to keep you awake. This uh, This is, yes, it's early. The sun's not coming up like it used to in the summer. But before all this, I'm sorry, but they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Luke 21, 11 through 13. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence and there will be terrors and, a great, and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. John 17, 15. When Jesus is praying, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, meaning Christians, his disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice specifically that God doesn't take us out of bad stuff. He helps us persevere. To say it another way, you don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. You don't stay uh, close to peace by staying away from tribulation. You stay close to peace by staying close to Jesus, okay? Now, why does all this matter? This just seems like a bunch of specific theology, There's a real weird picture up on the board. What does all this have to do with what we're learning today? And then I'll have Jeff come up to answer some questions. Three things of why the tribulation matters and knowing this theologically matters, okay? Number one, it matters because God wants us to rightly understand his word. That would be enough. If there was no practical application for something theological in the Bible, just knowing truth is something God wants you to know. There's benefit just in knowing truth, just knowing what the Bible says, because God's word is perfect and he wants you to know it. He has given it to you because he loves us and he has given us everything that we need to know for life and godliness, amen? So even if it had no practical application, that is a practical application. Sometimes the application of a text we're preaching is simply this, know what I just said. Know what I just said. Here's the second one though. It matters because it gives us hope. If you go through a time of suffering, you go through a time of tribulation, you go through even if there is some future time of tribulation, and you don't know that's normal, you don't know that's something that Christians are going to go through, you're going to think that God is mad at you. You're going to think that maybe you're not a Christian. You're going to think something wrong is happening. They even say that in the Bible, not to be surprised when these things happen as if something wrong were happening to you, something weird were happening to you. Rather, this is normal, okay? It will give you a tremendous amount of encouragement, If I'm going through suffering and I think it's pointless, it's hard to endure. If I'm going through suffering and I think God's mad at me, I can't endure. 
But if I'm going through suffering knowing this is evidence that I'm a Christian and God loves me and the suffering will not last forever, that's tremendously encouraging. It's tremendously encouraging. And then lastly, it matters because it helps us understand suffering. You see I put a little uh, no name it and claim it here uh, at the end. It matters because it helps us understand suffering. If you want something you can name and claim, it's this, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, okay? If you're a Christian and you are never persecuted and you never struggle and you never go through difficult times, you're not a Christian, if I can say it stronger, okay? This lets us understand suffering. Uh, Suffering for the Christian is not ever because God has wrath for us. All his wrath has been appeased at the cross. God never, ever again has wrath for Christians ever, Every time you're suffering, even if you're suffering because you're in sin and God is disciplining you, it's not because you're under his wrath, but because you're under his love. I discipline my kids not because I have wrath towards them, but because I love them. I want what's good for them in the long run, and God does the same for his adopted children, where he disciplines us. So you need to know every amount of suffering you experience from here on out until you die, if you're a Christian, since the time you became a Christian until you die, is never because you're under God's wrath. Yes, you could be under his discipline if you're walking in unrepentant sin, but you're not under his wrath. His discipline is a sign that you're saved. His discipline is a sign that he loves you. You could be suffering just because we live in a fallen, broken world, okay? Christians are just going to get cancer. Christians are just going to uh, have loved ones die. We're going to have spouses cheat. These things are going to happen because we live in a broken world. Christians suffer because God uses it to refine us. God wants us to have our, our ultimate joy in him, which is the highest joy. And so sometimes he will crush those lower joys, those lowercase j joys, to get us higher joy. God never asks you to give up a higher joy for a lesser joy. He will often ask you to give up a lesser joy for a higher joy, and he does that through suffering. And here's the biggest one, I think. It teaches us to trust that God is good even when we don't know why the suffering's happening. Everybody I've ever known that has struggled with suffering was, says to me something like this, Zach, Why am I going through this? Why doesn't God take it away? Why isn't it there? The same thing Job says. Job is going through suffering and he loses his kids and he loses his health and he's left with one wife who's just kind of awful anyway, kind of like, why didn't you take her, God, and leave the kids? And so everything is bad for Job and Job basically says this, tell me why. I'm innocent. This shouldn't be happening. God, I want to take you to court. And God never answers Job's question, even at the end. When Job gets his stuff back, God never still tells him why it was happening. Job never knows why he has to lose all these things. He's asking God the question, why? And God shows up with a who answer. God shows up and says, I'm sorry. I hang the earth on nothing. What do you do? I spoke everything into being. What do you do? I tell the snow where to fall. You have to sleep eight hours a day, okay? I control, I know where all the animals are doing exactly what I've ordained them to do. You, Job, have to go to the bathroom. You are not my equal, Put on your man pants and answer me, right? That's what God does. That's a, that's a paraphrase. It's a paraphrase. It says, gird your loins. That kind of means put on your man pants. And what God is doing is he's saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking why, because if you know why, you don't have to trust God. You can make sense of it. If God comes to you and says, you're going to suffer for the next year, but here's why, and I'm going to grow you and know that you've done nothing wrong, and here's exactly what I'm doing, you'll agree with it. But then you're not trusting God. If you agree with it, it's not submission, <laughs> Submission is where you realize, I don't agree with this, God. I don't like this. I don't know why you're doing it, but I know that you're good. What God will do is he won't give us the why most of the time because then we trust the reason. He wants us to trust him, and so he says, am I good? Am I sovereign, and am I good? Because if both of those things are true, you don't have to know why. You don't have to know why. 
sermonette over. Jeffrey, let me pray for us because now what we're doing is we're praying at the end of the lesson for the recording purposes and then we'll do the Q&A and uh, just dismiss after that. So let me pray as uh, Jeff comes up. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and ask that you would protect us and guide us. We pray that, uh, uh, that you would be with us. I pray that we would go through the minimum amount of suffering necessary. I don't want to pray for more suffering. I don't want to pray for more hurt, but I know that you're going to use it anyway. So would you shape us and refine us in as gentle a way as possible? And I pray that if there is some time in the future, that if tribulation is not just this general thing, if there is some time in the future where things get really bad, I'm not sure that there is, but I think there probably is, that you would help us be faithful, that you would help us persevere. We confess that we cannot do this. We also confess that it's not our job to keep us saved, that if we go through persecution, even if we were to be tortured, though we think we might fall away now, in that moment, you'll give us the grace that we need. You'll give us everything that we need for righteousness that we might not deny you. Would you help us love you? We want to ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen.